good or bad, where you come from says a lot about who you are. You don't have to be stuck with it, okay? You don't, you don't have to be stuck with that. You, you don't have to be doomed to your past, to your family, to your history. But it does impact you, right? And all those people that say it doesn't and have spent their whole lives rebelling against where they come from, it probably impacts them more because they're just trying to not be like where they came from, okay? Today is Reformation Sunday. And so what I'd like to do for a few minutes is tell you a little bit of the story of the Reformation and talk about where we come from as a church. We call ourselves Presbyterian. We call ourselves Protestant. We call ourselves Reformed. Where does that come from? So so today I want to share your story. This is the story of your name and who you are as a church. Our story begins with this guy named Martin Luther. Okay, Martin Luther... uh, was born into the Middle Ages. And i got to give you a little history here. In the Middle Ages, it was a very dark and difficult time. Okay? Extreme poverty and living conditions. Um, by, our, by any counts, about a quarter of all children died before they were five years old. About a quarter. There was this thing called the plague, and the plague would come in and just wipe out entire towns. And the scariest part of that was nobody knew how the plague spread. So it was a terrifying time. It was seen as the act of God or some kind of judgment and evil. Very superstitious. And nobody could read the Bible because, first of all, there's no printing press. So there's, there's no, all Bibles are hand copied. So do you know how much money you have to pay for a hand copied Bible? Nobody had a Bible. If you had a Bible, uh, if you could afford a Bible, maybe you could read. But could you read Latin, which all the Bibles were in at the time? Most priests at that time had never read the Bible, okay? A very small, very small percentage of priests had actually read the Bible at that time, okay? So it's a dark world, and everybody thinks that their only hope in this dark world is the afterlife, and the only thing they know anything about the afterlife from is the church. And what did I just say? A lot of priests had never read the Bible. So it's a a dark, it's a scary time, and into that world in 1483... Martin Luther is born. He studies the law until, uh, at some point, he is caught in a lightning storm uh, in, while he's traveling. And he makes a deal with God. If God will spare him, he will become a monk and he will follow God the rest of his life. And he gets out of there. Now, many of us have made those kind of deals and not taken them seriously. But I don't think Martin Luther had anything he didn't take seriously in his entire life. So he became a monk, and not just a monk. He became an Augustinian monk. That's the strictest kind of monk. Their goal was to imitate the sufferings of Christ. You deprived yourself of food. You wounded yourself. And uh, Luther was incredibly zealous. He once said, if ever a monk could go to heaven by his monkery, it is I. Okay? He just threw himself into it. But the problem was, he, he saw God as a judgmental God. He saw himself as never being able to be right with God. And so he would wound himself. He would hurt himself. He would, he would confess four times a day for all the sins that he had. And some of those confessions would last an hour long. So his superiors got tired of it, right? I got to spend all this time hearing Luther's confession. So what they decided to do was pour him into the busyness of studying the Bible, And it was in the study of the Bible that Luther discovered a kind of faith that he had never been exposed to before. Instead of earning salvation, Luther discovered that grace was a gift. All you had to do was open your hand to receive it. 
You didn't need the church to be the intercessor of faith because Jesus was the ultimate intercessor. Now, Luther found this in the reading of Romans, but it's so clear in our passage from Ephesians today. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Luther turns around and gets this amazing peace, understanding that it's God's grace given to him, that he can't earn it, but he just receives it. But just because Luther gets peace doesn't mean the rest of the church gets peace. Because Luther won't have it. Okay? Luther is often portrayed as sort of an academic with his Bible in his hand. In fact, here is Martin Luther. This is my Martin Luther from my office. And I have this same hat in my office from my doctorate. So I like to put it on and hold Martin Luther tight. Um, so that's Martin Luther. He was most upset, and the real fighting words came with the idea of indulgences. Okay, indulgences, this is, a, this is one from the 1920s. Okay, this is a real one. And uh, in the, at the time, what the Pope would do uh, in, the, in these days uh, is he would offer salvation to those who had died or who were in purgatory if someone would get around a sacred relic and would pay their money. Okay, so it's called an indulgence. This indulgence, you can see it later if you want, is from 1922, and it has nothing to do with salvation. It's all about blessings of a family. But this was probably a pretty important family. Um, But so people were going around and selling these. Luther thought this cheapened grace. If grace is a gift, why should people pay for it? Right? If it's really about your relationship with Christ, why does a piece of paper need to be a part of the process? And so he had a lot of trouble with this. He had a lot of trouble with his poor church members going out and paying for these. And so he wrote this thing called 95 Theses. They were points of argument that he nailed to the church door at Wittenberg in, on October 31st. That's why we're celebrating, because it's this week. And it was in 1517, meaning 501 years ago from this week. Luther did this. And it was taken down, it was translated into German and into other languages and spread across, the, all, across all of Europe. Uh, Luther gets in big trouble for this because he's questioning the Pope and he's questioning the church and he's questioning the biggest power of his day. Luther thought he was going to get in trouble and he sort of leaned into it. Luther never did anything halfway. In fact, you can go online and read Luther insults that he had written over time. He had a real sharp tongue. And go online later and look up Luther cartoons. For those people that couldn't read, he would draw cartoons of the Pope with a horn behind him. I'm not going to describe it too much in church. But he would describe, Luther would do these drawings that were very, very funny for his day. And they would print them because the printing press had just been invented. And his words went everywhere. He was going to get in trouble. He, he is spared at a trial because the crowd is so much in his favor. But he has to go into hiding. While he's in hiding, he decides a very important thing that impacts your life to this very day. He decided that if other people could read the Bible for themselves, they wouldn't get so uh, taken advantage of by other people who hadn't read the Bible but claimed to have truth. And so he started to translate the Bible into German, into the common tongue. And he translates the New Testament into the common tongue of his day. That German New Testament is the basis for your English Bibles that you have today. Eventually, he gets to go back to Wittenberg. He lives out his days, um, really trying to manage this new movement until he dies of a heart attack in 1546. 
When he dies, this movement is a, is, has been sparked into a flame. It's all over Europe. His words are traveling everywhere, including to our next figure, which is a guy named John Calvin. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall, Calvin is eight years old in Nyon, France. He goes on to study at the University of Paris, where he gets caught up in these Reformation thoughts that are now, because of the printing press, all over the place. You can read all these different documents. Um, he, has, he thinks that the, the time people have too high a view of the Pope and councils and too, far, too low a view of the Trinitarian God and scriptures, and he gets in trouble for it. In fact, he has to be lowered. He has to climb out, a, out his window at the University of Paris on a rope made of bed sheets that are tied together and sneak off to get away from the persecution of that time. As he leaves, he does what Luther does before him. He writes. He writes this book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. You find it in my office. Uh, It's not necessarily a real thrilling read. But it is very, very important. What, What Calvin thought was, here's all these people that are starting to get the Bible in their own language. And they have no basis for understanding it. So he wrote this little book that he later expanded and expanded again to be kind of a crash course in the Bible. Um, Calvin, it's, it's super important. I had to read large sections of it when I was in seminary, still to this day. What Calvin did was take a lot of Luther's stuff that Luther was so busy, he didn't get to think through things. Luther had not really changed his view of the sacraments. Uh, Luther was still praying to Mary, in fact. Um, there were certain doctrines that he hadn't taken much further uh, because he was busy, because of all the stuff he had done. Calvin sort of takes those further. One is, uh, uh, he looks at the communion table, and he says, you know what? The specialness of the communion table isn't in the actual bread and juice. It's in the Holy Spirit being present with us at the table. It's called real presence, and it's the view that we have. There's nothing special about the bread and the juice. In fact, a lot of times, uh, uh, some of us just eat the bread after we're done. Okay? It's not, the bread isn't the special part. The special part is the Holy Spirit bringing us into the presence of God in that moment. Okay, That's Calvin. He takes what Luther was saying and sort of brings it on to other issues. The other thing that Luther makes a big deal about, that's, or that Calvin does, that's in Luther, but he needs a little bit, he needs to take it further, is the sovereignty of God. For John Calvin, he does not have a real high view of free will. Okay, for John Calvin, he looks at a story like the Apostle Paul, who's on his way to kill Christians. And God stops him in the road and says, okay, you're mine. And, God's, and Calvin says, you know what? It's not really about free will. It's about God's call in your life. And so forever, that tradition, our tradition, has had a higher view of God's sovereignty and God's call in our lives than free will. Yes, you have to choose God, but you choose God after God first chooses you. And I've heard many people who talk about their conversion and what they say is, man, God did all kinds of stuff in my life to lead me to here. That's God's sovereignty in your choice. Calvin ends up in a Protestant, uh, recently turned Protestant city named Geneva, where he tries to lead this place as sort of the city of God that works in some ways, it doesn't work in other ways, but it influences a lot and it becomes sort of this hub of reformed, that's the name that this group picked up, Reformed, reforming the church. Or Protestant, they were protesting the church of its day. Um, 
the, the reform movement, the Protestant movement, the hub becomes Geneva because everybody else who's getting kicked out goes there to study with Calvin and to learn and then eventually to go back to their own place. Calvin died in May 20, on May 26, 1564. He was a key figure in Protestantism, influenced principles of government and capitalism that still affect you to this day. And more importantly, uh, my youngest son, Colvin, is named after him as a variation of Calvin. So there you go. Now you know Colvin's name. One of the biggest influences Calvin probably had was our next character, a guy named John Knox. And one of the reasons why I'm Reformed is because of these great beards. Okay, you notice that every, every slide we get to another great beard. John Knox was from the British Isles, from Scotland and Ireland. And um, he ends up having to leave to go study, and he, he finds refuge in Geneva, studies with Calvin, and eventually go back. For such an important figure, we know very little about his childhood. We do know he becomes a, uh, he becomes a priest gets involved in this reformed Protestant movement and ends up getting in trouble for it. He takes leadership in sort of this this castle. The Scottish government comes in to then put that down because at the time they're Catholic. And uh, he thinks he's going to be spared by ships out at sea, but it ends up those ships are French ships. And the French are very, very much Catholic at the time. He's actually brought aboard as a slave, a galley slave, which means uh, he's under terrible conditions for 19 months. Whenever there's no wind, he and his fellow reformers have to row the boat to get them anywhere at sea. Eventually, he is, his, his uh, release is negotiated. We're not even sure how. He goes back to England, then to Geneva eventually, and comes back. He has a lot of trouble with the female leadership in England. At the time, there's several queens in a row. So he writes this book. This is one of the greatest titles for a book ever. The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. That's the name of the title. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, it's not actually as anti-women as it might seem. Uh, it's, it's really, he's questioning whether women should be in leadership in government. And he is particularly questioning the, uh, the female leadership in England. Okay, so not as bad as my thought uh, you might think but it's a great title isn't it the problem is the publishing industry is picking up and it publishes this book and it goes crazy right as a particular woman comes to power she is mary the first you might know her as bloody mary okay so he writes this book about monstrous regiment of women at the time by the way monstrous didn't mean monsters it just meant bad but still was not a good time for that book to get so popular when Bloody Mary comes to power. She's known as Bloody Mary because she tries to kill so many reformers and bring England back to the Catholic Church. So Knox does not stay in England. He goes and gets an invitation back to Scotland, which is slowly sort of becoming more and more Protestant. And under his leadership, really it does. He helps reform the Scots Confession, which becomes the theological center. That's in 1560, the same year that Scotland becomes um, uh, Reformed or Protestant. Okay? Knox's biggest influence is he believed in this form of government where you elect officials. Those officials were called elders. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros, hence Presbyterian. 
Okay? And actually, you really understand this form of government because there were several important Presbyterians, including a pastor, that helped write the Constitution of our United States. Okay? So there are a lot of Scotch-Irish leaders that were Presbyterian that came to America and set up a, a new government and said, hey, I've got an idea. How about elected officials? Okay, so the U.S. government is actually formed off of Presbyterian polity. Knox uh, continues to be an important leader uh, in Scotland until his death in 1572. He helped make Scotland a uh, Protestant nation, helped give it its sort of basis. And then as more and more Scotch and Irish people started coming to the new land... They landed primarily in a place called Philadelphia, and then they moved to a place called Pittsburgh. And so there were two cities in the surrounding areas that are probably have the most Presbyterian churches in the world, and your plop dab in the middle of it. Um, so that is part of our heritage. Part of what the faith, though, picks up in Scotland and Ireland is the influence I think we have the least amount of understanding and connection with, and that is our next slide, Celtic Christianity. In Scotland and Ireland, they have this tradition going way back to the Druids of worshiping nature, of caring for nature, seeing spirits in nature. Um, There was this guy named St. Patrick, we know St. Patrick's Day, who goes to the British Isles in about the 500s. Um, We're not sure how much of his story is real and how much of his story is legend, but we know enough to know that there was a man named St. Patrick who went there and shared the faith. Because of this love of nature, a certain kind of Celtic spirituality takes place where we love nature and we see God in nature, very much part of the Psalms in our Bible, maybe at some times a little too much a favor of nature and maybe worshiping nature, But at its best, Celtic spirituality is about experiencing God. Where we don't just know God, but through nature, through each other, through our worship, we can in some way experience God. This is shown in Celtic crosses, uh, which is a good Presbyterian symbol, actually. This idea of weaving. And if if you notice on our Presbyterian logo that I showed earlier, it has a little bit of that weaving together almost of a Celtic... Look, the Celtic uh, cross stood for the sun. The sun was a circle, and uh, that was believed to be the source of life. So what they did was they took that, the circle, and they weaved it together inside of a cross to say, no, 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 the sun is not the source of life, but Jesus is the source of life. This is part of our heritage, that we don't just know about God, but we try to experience God in our lives, in our world, and in our worship. Now, if there's anything I think we need more of in our tradition, it's this. And we need even more connection with this idea that we don't just have head knowledge about God, but we experience God in our lives and in our world. That's part of the tradition that gets picked up in Scotland and Ireland as it comes over to the United States. So, let's talk about Presbyterians today. Okay, here we are as Presbyterians years and years later. We are Protestant, we are Reformed, we are Presbyterian, and now you know a little more the story of your name. Many stories, actually. And a lot can be gained from where we come from, right? In many ways, Presbyterians, I think, uh, in some ways today we stand for some of the wrong things. Sort of a, um, 
a liberalism that doesn't need Jesus in some places, certainly disunity as we've had so much division, for knowledge about God without experience of God. In some ways, I think part of what we're known for right now is decline and death in our churches. But that is not our history. That is not our name. Our name stands for something more. In light of our origin stories, let me, show, let me tell you what I think this, we should stand for. A high view of the Bible. A high view of learning and of reading. A high view of grace. An understanding that we receive salvation not through works but through faith. A high view of the sovereignty of God calling in our lives. A high view of the sacraments based on God's presence, not on the elements themselves. A high view of connection between our churches and in respect to our representative government as a denomination. And I think from our Celtic heritage, we need to have a high view of experiencing God in our world and in our midst. This is your story. May you live out this story more and more in your lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.